there and welcome. I'm Cleanna Nianlun, producer of the RT Radio 1 Davis Now Lectures. The University of the People 2002 Thomas Davis Lecture Series marked the 100th anniversary of the first Carnegie Libraries in Ireland. The lecture here is by Dr Muriel McCarthy, then Keeper of Marcius Library, situated beside St Patrick's Cathedral in Dublin. Founded by Archbishop Narcissus Marsh, it is the oldest public library in Ireland. Amongst the well-known readers in the library over its years have been Jonathan Swift, Thomas Davis himself, Bram Stoker, James Joyce and many more. Thomas Davis's own books are among the treasures of Marsh's library. On the 4th of May in the year 1700, the Church of Ireland Archbishop of Dublin, Narcissus Marsh, wrote to his friend Dr Thomas Smith in London. He asked Dr Smith who was a distinguished scholar and book collector, for his assistance in recommending to him choice books. And Marsh explained to Dr Smith that he intended to build a library in Dublin for public use. He also told Dr Smith that he had already laid aside £800 towards building the library and that he intended to leave all his own printed books to his library. He explained to Dr Smith that the reason he intended to leave all his own books to his proposed public library was because he had, and I quote, no relation that I think deserves such a favour. Archbishop Marsh employed the Surveyor General of Ireland, Sir William Robinson, as his architect. The library was beautifully designed by Robinson and is now one of the few 18th century buildings left in Dublin which is still being used for its original purpose. The library is furnished with magnificent dark oak bookcases, each with a carved and lettered gable topped by a mitre. But the bookcases are a little different from the usual bookcases in this type of library. The carved and lettered gable at the top gives a more elegant appearance to the entire library and the panelling and detail of the woodwork is superb. The first gallery is 60 feet long and the second gallery is 76 feet long. At the end of the second gallery are three wired alcoves, usually called the cages. These were intended by Marsh for the protection of the smaller, more valuable books, although the charming story that readers were locked in these cages as a security measure is also part of the library's history. Another protective measure was the use of chains on the lower shelves of the bookcases throughout the entire library. These chains were removed on the advice of the librarian in the middle of the 18th century. There is no doubt that Marsh took a great interest in the building and he mentions in his correspondence that the design was based on that of the Bodleian Library. Marsh, having built the library and furnished it with books, was anxious to have the library and its government incorporated in an Act of Parliament. The Act which he drew up was called an Act for Settling and Preserving a Public Library Forever. This Act vested the House and books in some of the most important clerical and legal officers of the state.
The library cost Marsh £5,000 and he intended spending another £500 on it. So why did Archbishop Marsh, who was an Englishman, build, entirely at his own expense, a library for the public in Ireland? To provide an answer to this extraordinary act of generosity, we must go back to Narcissus Marsh's career in England and his arrival as Provost of Trinity College in Ireland in 1678. Narcissus Marsh was born in 1638 in the village of Hannington in Wiltshire. He was educated locally and at Oxford University where he studied old philosophy, mathematics and oriental languages. He became a clergyman and was ordained in the Church of England. He was appointed to his first parish at Swindon, about three miles from his home in Hannington. After taking up residence in Swindon, he discovered to his horror that in return for his appointment, the Bishop of Exeter expected Marsh to marry the daughter of a friend of his. Marsh refused to marry. He returned to Oxford and began to study for his Doctorate of Divinity. In 1678, Marsh was offered and accepted the Provostship of Trinity College in Dublin. Unfortunately, he did not like Trinity College or Dublin. He said in his diary that he was finding Trinity College very troublesome, partly by reason of the multitude of business and useless visits the Provost is obliged to, and partly by reason of the ill education that the young scholars have before they come to college, whereby they are both rude and ignorant. I was quickly weary of 340 young men and boys in this lewd and debauched town, and the more so because I had no time to follow my always dearly beloved studies. This constant complaint continues throughout Marsh's diary. He was a scholar and disliked worldly business and was devoted to prayer and study. Nevertheless, while he was in Trinity, he played a major part in the preparation for printing of Bishop William Beadle's Irish translation of the Old Testament. But the study and promotion of Irish was not his only contribution to Trinity. He began building a new college hall and chapel and he completely reorganised the library. And it was while he was reorganising the library in Trinity that he discovered that under the statutes of the college, the library was not open to the public. It was only open to the provost and fellows. And there was another difficulty. If a student wanted to use the library, he had to be accompanied by a senior member of the staff who was obliged to stay in the library with the student. As far as Marsh was concerned, these rules were a great obstacle to learning and he noted rather contemptuously that the bookseller's shops in Dublin were furnished with nothing but new trifles and pamphlets and not well with them also. Marsh was obviously shocked that in a capital city there was nowhere for the public to go to read. He explained to Dr Smith that, and I quote, "'Twas this and this consideration alone 
that at first moved me to think of building a library in some other place for public use where all might have free access. Marsh, having built the library, now began to look for more books. Although he had decided to leave his own collection to his library, he knew that it was not enough to complete the library. He discovered that the late Bishop of Worcester, Edward Stillingfleet's famous library, was for sale. Marsh offered to buy it for £2,500. There was consternation in England at the possibility that Stillingfleet's library might leave England. The great scholar Dr Richard Bentley described Stillingfleet's library as the likes of which there was not anywhere in the world. Many unsuccessful attempts were made to find an English buyer. Even King William was approached, but Marsh's offer was accepted and when it arrived in Ireland, Ninian Wallace referred to it as this golden fleece. Bishop Stillingfleet's library contains books on a wide range of subjects, including theology, history, law, medicine, travel, science and the classics, and magnificent Bibles and prayer books. It is the most important collection in Marshes. The second collection in the library belonged to Dr Elias Buewo, a Huguenot refugee who fled from France in 1685 and came to Ireland in 1697. Archbishop Marsh appointed Buewo the first librarian in 1701 and as a result of his appointment, Buero donated his books to the library. Buero's library represents a typical scholar's library of the 17th century. Religious controversy, history, politics, science, medicine and many of the classical authors are well represented. There is also a considerable number of books relating to the French Protestants, the Edict of Nantes and the Wars of Religion. Buero's library also illustrates his interest in modern medicine and intellectual developments in 17th century France. This can be seen in the medical prescriptions which he wrote for his patients when he practised as a doctor in La Rochelle and in the latest publications on medicine and related scholarly subjects. The third collection consists of Marsh's own books, which he left to his library at his death. Marsh's private collection is slightly different from the other collections in that it demonstrates his special interests in Oriental material, including Arabic, Hebrew, Syriac, Persian, Armenian and Russian books. The fourth major collection was bequeathed in 1745 by John Stern, the Bishop of Clogher. Bishop Stern is the only major Irish collector in the library and a considerable part of his collection relates to Ireland. But it is interesting to note that there are some very important books of Irish interest in both Marsh's and Stillingfleet's collections. Archbishop Marsh also showed great interest in Irish manuscripts and he purchased a collection of Irish historical manuscripts that originally belonged to the well-known Irish Orientalist Dudley Loftus.
Archbishop Marsh's interest in collecting Irish books and manuscripts was maintained by the librarians of Marsh's when they tried to build up the Irish collection in the early part of the 20th century. From the small book purchasing fund of £20, which has never been increased, they managed to buy a very important collection of books and periodicals relating to Irish history, printed within the 19th and early part of the 20th centuries. These included a collection of pamphlets on politics, trade, education, religion and statistics, which originally belonged to Thomas Davis and bear his signature. Altogether, there are 25,000 books in Marsh's library. Since there are now some marvellous public libraries available both in Dublin and all around Ireland, it is easy to forget that Marsh's library was the only library available to the public in Dublin for over 150 years. In the 18th and 19th centuries, it attracted some fascinating readers and visitors. These included Tom Moore, who used to be locked into the library since he wished to work longer than the opening hours permitted. He said, On these occasions, I used to be locked in there alone, and I owe much of that odd and out-of-the-way sort of reading, which may be found scattered through some of my earlier writings. The novelist and dramatist Charles Robert Maturin also wrote in Marshes. According to William Carlton, Maturin had not only been a reader in Marshes, but had also written the greater portion of several of his novels there on a small, plain, deal desk which he moved from place to place according as it suited his privacy or convenience. James Clarence Mangan transcribed documents for the Ordnance Survey in 1838. Other distinguished visitors and readers included Thomas Davis, Emily Lawless, William Rowan Hamilton and Bram Stoker. Stoker came to the library several times throughout 1866 while he was a student in Trinity College. At Marshes, Stoker read travel books, geographies, books on theology and popery, and the poetry of Spencer, Dryden, Chaucer and Ben Jonson. One of the works he consulted was Montesquieu's book On the Decadence of the Roman Empire, published in 1735. It is tempting to speculate that Stoker might have known that Charles Robert Maturin wrote his classic Gothic horror Melmoth the Wanderer in Marshes. But perhaps the best-known writer to come and work in Marshes' library, apart from Jonathan Swift, was James Joyce. Joyce came to Marshes to study a 16th-century book called The Prophecies of Joachim Abbas, which contains weird illustrations. He mentioned his visit to Marshes in his great work, Ulysses, when he said, Houses of decay, mine, his and all. You told the Clongo's gentry, you had an uncle a judge and an uncle a general in the army. Come out of them, Stephen. Beauty is not there, 
nor in the stagnant bay of Marsh's library, where you read the fading prophecies of Joachim Abbas. While Marsh's scholarly and sombre atmosphere may sometimes appear a bit intimidating, like most ancient institutions, it also has its own secrets and romantic stories, and as you might expect, it even has a ghost story. The ghost of the Archbishop is said to haunt the library, searching for a letter left for him in one of his books by his niece Grace before her elopement. Grace married the vicar of Castlenock in a tavern, much to the distress of her uncle. One of the most serious events occurred in the 19th century when there was a conspiracy to remove all the books from Marshes to the new National Gallery in Merrion Square. This proposal was actually agreed by the board and the building was to be sold. The reason given for the proposed removal was the appalling condition of the fabric and the government's refusal to help at that time. Fortunately, this plan was discovered by Sir Benjamin Lee Guinness, whose offer to restore the library was accepted, and as a result, the library was saved. But that wasn't the only threat to the future of the library. Although in the early 18th century, some very fine scholarly librarians were appointed, from 1773, a family called Craddock were librarians for almost a hundred years. While the first Craddock, William, was quite a good librarian, the later members of his family who succeeded him were a disaster. Fortunately for the library, Thomas Russell William Craddock, who was appointed in 1841, was the last of his family to hold the position of librarian. Craddock was ignorant, stupid and careless, and he regarded the library as his private property. One of the most baffling things he used to do was to move books from their original positions to some other part of the library. This involved changing their shelf marks and the catalogue. When the roof leaked, instead of having it repaired, he put a bucket under the leak to catch the water. And worst of all, he regarded scholars as a nuisance and treated them with contempt. But these are not the only examples of his extraordinary behaviour. On one occasion, when Craddock went on holiday, the assistant librarian, Professor Robert Travers, was required to sleep in the librarian's apartment in the library. Travers was a great scholar and devoted to marshes. He noticed that Craddock's garden was in a disgraceful state. In fact, Craddock had neglected it for over 30 years. Travers cleaned up the garden and he even managed to plant some flowers. When Craddock returned and saw what had been done, he was furious and borrowed a goat which he let loose in the garden. When Travers protested, Craddock said, I hate a garden. I declare to God I hate the very sight of a garden. Listeners might like to be assured that the garden in Marsh's library is now beautifully kept and is regarded as one of the very best in the inner city. The assistant librarian whom I've just mentioned, Professor Robert Travers, 
was one of the finest and most knowledgeable librarians ever to work in the library. He was assistant librarian for 31 years and was a well-known scholar both in literary and medical circles in Dublin. He was also professor of medical jurisprudence in Trinity College. When Thomas Russell William Craddock died, the librarian's job became vacant. Robert Travers applied for the job, but the governors and guardians did not appoint him. So why was this fine scholar and best qualified man not appointed? There could only be one reason. His notorious daughter, Mary Josephine, had, a few years earlier, become involved in a famous libel action against Lady Wilde. When Mary Josephine was 19, she was a patient of Sir William Wilde, who became infatuated with her. But after some years, Sir William got tired of Mary Josephine and tried to get rid of her. But Mary Josephine was not to be put off so easily. She began a campaign to annoy both Sir William and Lady Wilde. She wrote scurrilous, apocryphal pieces to the newspapers, even going so far as to announce her own death. Finally, after another outrageous episode, Lady Wilde wrote a letter of protest to Robert Travers, accusing Mary Josephine of having an intrigue with Sir William and of trying to extort money from them. Robert ignored the letter, but Mary Josephine found it and decided to take a libel action against Lady Wilde. There was great excitement in Dublin when the case began. Isaac Butt appeared for Mary Josephine. The evidence provided Dublin with the most sensational gossip and details of Sir William Wilde's ridiculous behaviour with Mary Josephine were described. Although Mary Josephine won the libel case, the jury showed what they thought of the case by awarding her one farthing's damages. The libel action almost ruined Sir William and was a tragedy for Robert Travers. It would appear that the governors and guardians of Marsh's library were not prepared to appoint a librarian who was so closely associated with this sensational scandal. Travers was deeply upset and although he stayed in Marsh's until his death 16 years later, he was never appointed librarian. Because Marsh's library was the first public library in Ireland, it was a very popular library in the 18th and early 19th centuries. But when more convenient libraries, such as the Royal Irish Academy, Royal Dublin Society and the National Library became available, readers forgot about Marsh's. But the availability of other libraries was not the only explanation for Marsh's lack of use. The fact that there was no printed catalogue of all the books in the library was a great disadvantage for readers. This disadvantage has now been overcome by the recataloguing onto a database of all our printed books and manuscripts. This catalogue was made available on our internet website and can therefore be consulted by scholars all over the world. Another development which helped to make marshes better known to scholars and visitors was our Raising Awareness campaign of publicity 
together with a series of exhibitions. In these exhibitions, some spectacular and beautiful books on a wide range of subjects were on display, including the writings of the ancient classical authors. Many of these books were printed by the famous European scholar printers, such as the Estiennes in Paris, Aldous and Jensen in Venice, the Blau and Elsevier families in Holland and Froben in Switzerland. As a result of this publicity and our website, academics, students and bibliographers now come to work in the library, where they can examine books written by some of the greatest 16th and 17th century European scholars. To give some examples, Italy is represented by Petrarch, Dante, Machiavelli and Galileo, France by Rousseau, Voltaire, Moliere, Montaigne and Descartes, England by Dryden, Ben Jonson, Milton, Hobbes, John Donne and Francis Bacon, Ireland by Don Scotus, Luke Wadding, Philip O'Sullivan Bear, John Colgan, Roderick O'Flaherty, William Molyneux, Jonathan Swift and Thomas Davis. It is easy to forget that in the early 18th century, Marsh's library would have been regarded as a modern library with the latest books and a modern classification system. But if we are to read Archbishop Marsh's constant request to his friend and adviser, Dr Smith, this view of the library is not so surprising because Marsh was quite specific in what books he required for the public. He said he wanted it to be well furnished with such books as may render it useful to all sorts of persons and none but the most useful books in each faculty and science that may be proper to put into a library designed as mine is, as to divinity, civil and common law, medicine and anatomy, history, geography, mathematics, of authors and their best editions. And he added that classical authors and poets are not to be neglected, for a library must still be increasing as new books or new and better editions of old ones do come out. Marsh's library is a rich source for studying the history of ideas. To examine the books in Marsh's is to explore a world which has been one of the hallmarks of Europe's great cultural heritage. Marsh's has been used by scholars for 300 years. It was always intended to be a working library and it continues to be so. Marsh's library is beside St. Patrick's Cathedral in the heart of the liberties of Dublin. It is one of the most beautiful libraries in Ireland and a great centre for 17th century studies. That was Muriel McCarthy and her talk relating to libraries from the 2002 RT Radio Thomas Davis Lecture Series, The University of the People, which marked the 100th anniversary of the first Carnegie Libraries in Ireland. The producer was Bernadette Comerford and its consulting editor was Nora McDermott. Go to the Davis Now Lectures website for more information on rte.ie forward slash radio 
forward slash Davis Now Lectures and find further Davis Now Lectures where you get your podcasts. From me, producer Cleon and Thank you for listening.